Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation. Over the past few months, we've really been looking at the introduction to the book of Revelation. As Jesus introduced himself to John in chapter 1, uh, introduced himself to his church in chapters 2 and 3, uh, and then gave John a vision of what the events were that were happening in heaven in chapters 4 and 5 to give him context for the vision that he would then receive for the events that would take place on earth in chapter six through the end of the book. And in those chapters four and five, we saw the primary feature of chapter four was the sovereign God sitting on his throne. And the primary focus of chapter five was the slaughtered lamb who also reigned with the father. And so those two things provide the context for the whole rest of the book, the sovereignty of God and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the the four sealed judgments that are poured out in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And we said that those are really cyclical events that come up in the sealed judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, that these are things that are taking place throughout uh, the church age from the time that Christ came the first time until he comes the second time. Uh, life is characterized by war and persecution and famine and plague and even wild animals, the created order rising up against humanity. Uh, and this is how God's judgment is being brought about on the earth, how he is purifying his people from idolatry and how he is bringing about his appointed ends for the created order, uh, to bring about uh, the renewed, recreated, the new heaven and the new earth. And we get to the beginning of the end here at the end of chapter 6. And so I have entitled this message, The Beginning of the End, Living in Light of the End of the World. Uh, Because even though the first four judgments are cyclical, they all culminate in the last three judgments, which are all about bringing the created order to its appointed end, that it might be remade and renewed. And so we are going to be in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 17 today. And we will see uh, God's purposes for his people and for his creation uh, start to come to their designed end. And so follow along as I read uh, Revelation 6, chapters nine, verses 9 through 17. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Then I saw him open the sixth seal. A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. As we've said all throughout our journey through Revelation together, uh, we really want to focus on what is clear in the text and not get sidetracked by all the symbolism and what it could potentially mean. And so we are going to uh, keep things simple here today with just two points. And as I've said from the beginning, the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. If we walk away from the book of Revelation and walk away with timelines and charts and dates and and guesses at who different people are supposed to be, we've really misread the book. Uh, We should read the book of Revelation and walk away with Jesus. And so our focus is going to be on Jesus in both of our points today. And the first thing that we need to see is that Jesus is to be our only loyalty. Jesus is to be our only loyalty. As the fifth seal is broken by the Lamb, something different happens. Uh, The first four seals were broken, and, and each time a seal was broken, a horse and its rider appeared and were sent out uh, onto the earth uh, to bring about a judgment, war, or plague, or famine. And yet here, as the fifth seal is broken, uh, no, nothing that we would consider judgment is poured out. Uh, instead, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had been given. Uh, John sees the souls of martyrs. We've said previously that our word martyr comes from the Greek word witness. And it doesn't mean someone who witnesses to the point of death in Revelation, but they are so intricately tied together in the book of Revelation that it's really one of the main reasons why the word eventually came to mean what it means in English, why we take the Greek word for witness to mean someone who uh, dies for their faith. These are souls of those who had died because of their faith. And they had done so in the midst of the first four judgments. Uh, They had been killed during uh, the times when the horsemen were sent out among the earth. And we see that uh, through the equivalent language. In verse 9, they are called the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony that they had been given. And that draws us back to chapter 6, verse 4, where Uh, The red horse and its rider uh, were allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. As we said last week, that word slaughter in the book of Revelation is always used of either the lamb or his people. Uh, The only exceptions are when it's used of the the false counterfeit version of faith that is uh, raised uh, by the Antichrist and the beast later in the book. And then later on, in verse 11, it talks about the brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. And again, that 
is the same word used in verse 8, where death and Hades were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. These souls who cry out under the altar to God in uh, verses 9 through 11 are believers who had lost their lives during the seal judgments, during the first four seals. Uh, They were killed by those four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so the church is still on earth for those judgments, and the church is, is being affected by those judgments. They are suffering because of those judgments. Contrary to some in the seven churches in chapters two and three who had compromised the faith uh, in the face of physical, economic, or societal persecution, these souls had remained faithful. And because of the word of God and the testimony they had been given, they were slaughtered. And yet there were still more to come. There were still more fellow servants and brothers and sisters uh, that the reason why God was waiting to bring about the end of the earth was to allow the final number to accrue. And there were more servants and more brothers and sisters who were going to be killed, uh, killed by the sword, by famine, by plague, by wild animals of the earth. And so as these souls and They had given their lives out of loyalty to the faith, out of loyalty to the Lamb. And they are crying out to God, how long until you bring about your appointed ends for the earth? How long until you make all things new? There were still going to be more. God's waiting is to allow more people, his appointed people, into the kingdom. And so these souls who were martyred were those who had remained loyal to Christ, who had suffered just as Christ had, who had been slaughtered just as the lamb, as we saw back in chapter 5, had been slaughtered. This might have some connection to what uh, Paul wrote about in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where he had written, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. And of course, Paul can't be meaning that there's anything lacking in Christ's atonement as though Paul needed to add some affliction in, in order for Christ's church to be saved. But rather, he seems to be saying that just as Christ's physical body suffered, so his body, the church, is appointed to suffer. And so just as Christ had certain sufferings that he had to endure, so the church has certain sufferings that we must endure. And just as it was not until it was finished that Christ breathed his last, when all of the appointed suffering had, been, uh, had fallen upon him, that it was finally finished. So it is with the church that God will withhold the end of days until the church has suffered all that it is intended to suffer. And so we see that these uh, martyrs, these souls who have been slaughtered are slaughtered due to their loyalty. But then we also see that in the prayer that they pray and in what they cry out 
to God. And they cried out in verse 10 with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And we sometimes struggle with verses like this one um, because it just seems so contrary to what we're commanded to do elsewhere. And we might think uh, about uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says uh, at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your kingdom is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or we might think about the command to pray for those who persecute us, to bless those who curse us. And so we might see what Jesus tells us to do and what these souls underneath the altar are crying out and think that there's some kind of disconnect. But really what we see in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, is what we see in the imprecatory Psalms, uh, where the psalmists cry out very similar things. How long, O Lord? How long must we suffer? How long until you get up and avenge us? How long until your will is done? And so really, what we see in this prayer is loyalty to the kingdom. What we see in this prayer, uh, how long, O Lord, until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood, is very much what Jesus taught us to pray. It's what he, he taught us uh, to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where he taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we struggle with the imprecatory Psalms. We struggle with verses like Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, which call on God to bring vengeance. But that, of course, is what God himself says. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so this isn't what we are so tempted to do when we are persecuted, when we uh, suffer at the hands of other people in any way, we so often want to take revenge ourselves, even if we just think in our minds about the revenge we would like to take on those people, even if we just curse them in our hearts and not out loud. We really want to take that vengeance ourselves. We want to speak out against the person. We want to bring judgment down on those people. But these souls underneath the altar are really saying, no, Lord, we are not taking our vengeance. But how long, O oh Lord, until you do? How long until you keep your promises to us? How long until you make our suffering right? And this is where many of us are. Again, when I was preaching this to uh, the men of the Colony of Mercy, uh, they kind of get the, the test run. I go through it with them prior to recording and we talked about uh, how so many of them who come in, uh, you end up in a residential uh, recovery facility and statistics say about 90% of people who end up in a recovery facility have some level of, of trauma in their background. They have been sinned against in some way. They have suffered 
greatly. And even among the general population, uh, it's a very high percentage of us who have suffered at the hands of others. And we like to hope that our suffering had a purpose. We like to, to hope that it wasn't meaningless, that God has a plan for us, that God has a plan for that suffering in our lives, that God is going to bring about his purposes. And at the end of the day, God is going to make all things right. And this prayer is one that we can pray in that hope. This is what the souls of the martyred are praying. How long, O Lord, until our suffering is redemptive? How long until your purposes are brought to bear in the midst of it? How long until you interject in this world of suffering, of death, of plague, of famine, of tribulation? How long until you interject and bring about your purposes. And that is what they are praying for. They are not just praying, Lord, smite down those people that we don't like. But rather they are calling on the name of the one who is holy and true. They are calling on the one who is holy, who is not only morally pure, but who is completely transcendent and greater than anything on this earth. And they are calling on the one who is true, who is faithful, to all of his promises. And they are calling on him to judge the, those who live on the earth and avenge their blood. They're calling on the one who is holy and true to interject in his creation. They are praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so they are very much praying chapters four and five of revelation because as jesus taught us to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we see in chapters four and five god's will being done in heaven and then starting in chapter six we see his will being done on earth and so this is the prayer of the souls who had been slaughtered uh, an imprecatory prayer an imprecatory psalm lord your kingdom come Lord, come, interject, judge the earth, avenge our blood, make all things right. And this is the loyalty that we are reminded to be living in as we see the beginning of the end. Again, God is not giving John this glimpse into his purposes for humanity, for the created order, so that John or any of his subsequent readers can go and create timelines and charts. Rather, he's giving it to us so that no matter what we are going through, as we live through those four horsemen of the apocalypse, as we are faced with death and persecution and famine and plague and the created order rising up against us, that we might have hope, that we might similarly with our slaughtered brothers and sisters cry out, to the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? That we might cry out even as the book itself ends, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That is to be our primary loyalty to the kingdom purposes of Jesus Christ. And so we are called in this fifth seal judgment uh, both to dedicate ourselves to, to the loyalty to Jesus Christ. It's a reminder 
that this is what loyalty to Jesus Christ looks like, just as the seven letters to the churches warned us about, that in the face of persecution, whether it's physical or financial or societal pressure or whatever else it is, that yes, loyalty to Jesus Christ might look like being slaughtered, and yet we still give our ultimate loyalty to Jesus Christ because we give our loyalty to the one who was slaughtered, to the lamb who was slaughtered. And we pray for his purposes to be done, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus is to be our only loyalty. Secondly, Jesus is to be our only security. Jesus is to be our only security. We first see this idea that Jesus is to be our only security uh, in the fifth seal judgment. After the slaughtered souls under the altar cry out to God in verse 10, in verse 11 it says, So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. They were given a white robe. The white robe symbolizes uh, their righteousness, this, the righteousness of the saints, but the robe is not earned by them, but given to them. It is the righteousness of the saints, but it is Christ's righteousness and not their own. Uh, this was uh, uh, also the reward promised to the, the church at Sardis when they had the reputation for being alive, but, but they were really dead when their works uh, were not what their reputation was. Um, they were told that the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, will be dressed in white clothes in Revelation 3, 5. Uh, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. And so that then gets pulled back in here in Revelation chapter 6. And these souls are those whose names are not going to be written, not going to be erased out of the book of life. They are given their white robes, uh, not because they were slaughtered. Uh, this is not um, kind of the stereotypical promise of, of Islam that if you die in jihad, you get 70 virgins in heaven. This isn't the reward for being martyred, but rather this was their security. Why? they could give their ultimate loyalty to Jesus, even to the point of being slaughtered, was because their security was not in themselves. Uh, they were not earning anything, even in being slaughtered. But rather, their security was in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. And now, as they, as they wait for God to bring about the end of the world, as they wait for God to bring about his purposes for the earth to judge the world and avenge their blood. They are given white robes. They are given Christ's righteousness. But then, of course, you also see this primarily in the sixth seal. As we see a great cosmic eruption as the sixth seal is broken. And in verse 12 and following, it says, A violent earthquake occurred. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of hair. The entire moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its unripe figs when shaken by a high wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved. 
from its place. And again, as we've seen over the past couple chapters, we do have this temptation to come up with these one-to-one correlations for these symbols, to, to read those verses, and then to real quick look at the news headlines and see where it matches up. And so you, you might remember a couple of years ago when we had a series of blood moons, uh, and pastors even wrote books uh, declaring that the end of the world was near because of these blood moons that were happening, especially in connection with Jewish feasts. And we, we want to, to look for those one-to-one correlations. But of course, it's not the point here or elsewhere in Revelation. Uh, most of these symbols are really callbacks to the Old Testament. And we don't have time uh, to sit there and walk through all of those Old Testament passages. Uh, I do encourage you to go into your Bibles, look at the cross-references, look up those Old Testament passages. But these are all uh, cosmic events that were connected with the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord would come back and He would uh, bring about the appointed end of His creation. He would come back to judge the earth. He would come back to make all things right. And that is what we see in these events. Uh, But we also see really an undoing of creation, an undoing of the created order. Uh, Verses 12 through 14, uh, and then even moving on, really almost backtrack Genesis 1 through 3. But instead of God creating all things, bringing order out of chaos by the power of his word, Uh, Here we see the created order going back into chaos. We see decreation. We see deconstruction instead of construction. And instead of uh, light being brought out of darkness, now we see the lights going out and darkness returning. Uh, Instead of the waters being separated from the earth, we see the earth being engulfed again by the waters. Instead of uh, mountains being raised up out of the earth, we see mountains being done a way with. And we see this, uh, we see the created order being almost rewound to what it was in Genesis 1-1 when it was void and the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. And then we see that even as you move on into verse 15 where every slave and every free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains and mankind is right back where they were in Genesis chapter 3 where God comes down into the garden and Adam and Eve hide from his presence. And so you see again here God comes down to earth not to create this time but to decreate, to deconstruct and man uh, in the face of this holy God knowing his own sin once again hides from his presence. You see very much what I alluded to to Romans chapter 8 last week, and I'll read a a couple verses from that here today. In Romans chapter 8, verses starting in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. And we saw last week in Matthew 24 where uh, Jesus brings up a lot of these similar things. The, the woes that are pronounced in Matthew 24 find their equivalents in Revelation chapter 6. And Jesus himself spoke about, about birth pangs. And what we saw in the first four seals were birth pangs. We, the, the pains of a woman going into labor and it was the earth preparing to be remade. Uh, and so that's what we see from the crucifixion until Jesus' second coming. We see those wars and rumors of wars. We see famine and plague. Uh, we see the created order rebelling against man. And we see death and destruction. And that is the birth pangs. That is the labor pains as the earth gets ready to be birthed anew. And what you see in the sixth seal now is labor about to be brought to its completion. And these birth pangs now are not just here and there. It doesn't come and go. We're not in contractions anymore where you get a little relief in between contractions. Now we are in full-blown labor. And so the earth is not just experiencing little glimpses of war and famine and plague, but now the entire created order is being undone. And again, because of this connection to Genesis 1 to 3, because those first four seal judgments, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as we saw last week, were in the Old Testament a response to idolatry, what I think you have here is idolatry being undone. Genesis 1 and 2 is not just creation, but it's the erection of a temple uh, the created order was designed to be a temple for God, where God would dwell among his people and receive the worship that he is worthy of. And of course, man failed to keep God's temple. And instead, from Genesis 3 right through the rest of the Bible, man continually is taking God's temple and erecting idols up in it. Instead, and instead of worshiping God in his temple, we are worshiping false idols in his temple. And so I think what you see in this sixth seal is Samson pushing on the pillars of the temple in the Philistine when he's, he's tied up in the Philistine temple to bring the temple crashing down. I think we see Jesus driving out the tax collectors and the money changers from the temple. What you see is God bringing down the false temple, the temple that has been desecrated by idol worship, so that a new holy temple might be erected where he will be worshiped. And that is why Jesus can be our only security. In verses 15, it says, the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. 
And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? Through the first four seal judgments, they were plagues and and judgments that would affect some people more than others. Uh, We theorized last week that that might be why God did not allow the, the rider on the black horse to touch the wine or the oil that he was protecting the least of these, that he was protecting the poor uh, from the effects of the famine. But by the time we get to the sixth seal, everyone is equal. I'm recording this in 2020 in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, COVID-19 affects some people more than others. There are some people who are absolutely devastated by the effects of this crisis, either because of health reasons or financial reasons. As jobs have been shut down and people have lost income, there are people who are set back for years and decades because of the plague that has come upon the country in 2020. And yet some people are barely affected at all. Uh, Their only effect is inconvenience. They have to wear a mask. They can't go out and eat at their favorite restaurant. But otherwise, they are fine. They will not lose any income. Or if they do lose income, it is insignificant compared to what they have in the bank. And there's this unequal effect that the four horsemen have on Earth's population. The sixth seal, however, levels the playing field. Kings of the earth, nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person, both rich and poor, powerful and lowly, everyone is affected by the sixth seal. Everyone stands equal before God as he prepares to return. And so you have all of these people, the great mass of humanity, who are hiding in caves and among the rocks of the mountains and telling the mountains to fall on them lest they have to face the wrath of God and of the Lamb. And of course, what is likely here, uh, what I think is implied here, especially given the question that it ends with and who is able to stand uh, the, the wrath of the Lamb is not just the wrath that the Lamb is doling out. And remember, this isn't the wrath of the Lion. This is the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slaughtered. Uh, this is the, the wrath that the Lamb took on uh, on the cross. And that, therefore, is the answer to the question, who is able to stand? It's not just a rhetorical question. Who is able to stand are those who are protected from the wrath because the wrath has been absorbed by the Lamb. And so, Jesus is not, our, not only our only loyalty, He is our only security. The ones who can face the judgments, the ones who can face all of these things that are being poured out on the created order, the ones who can stand in the face of the wrath of the Lamb, are those who are protected by the lamb. That the wrath that was due them fell on the lamb instead. And I think that's 
the implication here is that these kings and nobles and generals and rich and powerful and slave and free, they have no security. They stand before a holy and righteous God with filthy rags. And they recognize the depth of their depravity finally once and for all. And they cannot stand to be in the presence of that holy God with nothing to cover them but their own sin, their own filthy rags of righteousness. And so they had never trusted in the work of Jesus Christ. They had never taken on the lamb as their sin bearer. They had never placed their sins on the lamb that the lamb might absorb the wrath that their sins deserved. And so now as God begins to undo creation, uh, not to obliterate it, but to make it new. And his judgment comes upon the earth as wrath is poured out on sin. They are not in the Lamb. They do not stand as forgiven because Christ took on the wrath that their sins deserved, but rather because they insisted on standing before God in their own righteousness. They are now receiving the weight of that righteousness. They are receiving what that righteousness deserves, which is wrath. And so this, I think, is what we are called to see as we look at the beginning of the end. This is how we live in the light of the end of the world, is not by trying to look every time we have a meteor shower and think, oh no, the world is ending, or every time we see a blood moon. But we are given these celestial happenings. We are given what the cosmic undoing might look like. We're given these symbols so that, yeah, a meteor shower does remind us that one day the world is going to end. One day the Lamb is coming back. And we are given this picture of the moon becoming like blood so that when we do see a blood moon, when that does occur in the heavens, it does remind us that the Lamb is coming back. And for the unbeliever, it should wake them to trust in the Lamb, that the Lamb might absorb the wrath that their sins deserve so it does not fall upon them at the end. But for those of us who are believers, this is why, again, even this sixth seal with all of its judgment, even the fifth seal with being confronted with the fact that our faith might lead us to be slaughtered, why we can have certain comfort that no matter what takes place in this earth, no matter what uh, wars we face, what persecution we face, the plagues, the famines, creation itself rising up against us, that our hope and our comfort is that we do not face the wrath of the Lamb, that the Lamb has absorbed that wrath on our behalf, and that we stand free and forgiven And that we one day, along with our slaughtered brothers and sisters, will receive the white robe. We will be given the white robe of Christ's righteousness. Not because we've earned it, but because in trusting in Jesus Christ, it is freely given to us as grace. And so who is able to stand? The one whose loyalty is to the Lamb and the one whose security is in the Lamb. And that is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 
through 17. Uh, the sixth seal continues on through chapter 7, which we will look at the next time, which will be in a few weeks after our conference season here at America's Keswick ends. Thanks for joining us.